Hey, I'm Tiffany Woise, and this is the best of What's Mine is Yours. Good morning. Morning. There's some coffee behind me. Great, just what I need. What do you want to write today? I did have this one idea. Have you ever heard a song and felt like it was yours? That it was written for you? Me too. And that's why I moved to Nashville, Tennessee to record and sing songs written by people who have written songs you've heard. The songs you have grown to love, the songs you were raised on, and the songs that you've attached your stories to. Come along with me as I interview songwriters who write the words that inspire all of us. This is What's Mine is Yours. Our guest today is Kent Blazy. Kent was born in Lexington, Kentucky. At an early age, he learned to play the guitar and never turned back on music. After many years on the road, he moved to Nashville in 1980. Kent has had seven number one songs, most notably known for Garth Brooks's first number one song, If Tomorrow Never Comes. Kent has had artists record his songs such as Gary Morris, Diamond Rio, Patti Loveless, and Chris Young. I really, really liked Kent. Something about him just felt so warm and just genuine and kind. And this was really, really cool to sit down with Kent and for him to be as amazing as he is because he helped create one of the largest country artists ever, Garth Brooks. Welcome, Kent Blazy, to What's Mine is Yours. It is great to be here, finally. Out of all the songs you've written that have been cut and have been hits, is the one that's giving you the most financial freedom to continue to do what you do? It probably is ain't going down till the sun comes up. Okay. Because that still gets so much airplay because it's so up-tempo. But the song that means the most to me out of any song I've ever written is If Tomorrow Never Comes. Of course. And it's just because of the kind of the backstory behind it. Garth was cleaning churches and selling boots, and I had lost my publishing deal. And we just sat down, wrote this song. We pitched it around for a year. Nothing happened. We thought, okay, maybe we need to rewrite it. So we were going to rewrite it, and he got a call to come play at the Bluebird one night, and he played that song. And somebody who had passed on him for the third time that week said, maybe we missed something. Why don't you come back in? And so it's just meant a lot to me that, this kid who is nobody all of a sudden has a record deal, and it's because of my song that he got to be mm-hmm. able to take the chance to turn into Garth Brooks. Oh, yeah. We are going to talk about Garth Brooks. Mm-hmm. Why don't we just get right to it? Because <laughs> you brought it all up. So, like you said, you co-wrote If Tomorrow Never Comes with mm-hmm. Garth Brooks. Tell me about all of that story going in, him coming to you with that idea, because I've read about it before. Mm-hmm. and. I know you've said it before, but there are going to be people who have never heard this story, and right. I think it's fascinating. I think it's great. So if you don't mind telling us about him coming to you with that idea. Right. So like I was talking about earlier, having all the irons in the fire that you could, in the oh, mid to late 80s, I started realizing I could put a demo studio together because I would do these demos and pitch my songs, and people would go, who did that? And it's like, I did. And So other writers started asking me to do them. So I got this little demo studio going. And if you sing like me, you need to have the best singers you can get. The ones I got 
were like Faith Hill, Martina McBride, Trisha Yearwood, Joe Diffie, Billy Dean, Rob Crosby, Doug Stone. All these people sang demos for me. Who were they? <laughs> yeah, I know. The crazy thing was they were nobody. Wow. And they couldn't get record deals. And that's why they were demo singers. And, you know, I'd be sitting with my headphones on like this and Joe Diffie'd be singing a song. I'm going, how can this guy not have a record deal? And they all became famous. But Garth's manager, Bob Doyle, knew that I had a studio and Garth was cleaning churches and selling boots uh-huh. and he wanted to sing demos. So they came over and they played me a cassette of six songs. I liked what I heard. And I said, I'll start using you on demos. And so when they were leaving, Bob said, he writes a little bit too. So this was November. I just in, moved into a new house in Green Hills and was trying to get ready for Thanksgiving for family. Then it was Christmas. Then I used to take all January and write by myself. So I said, I don't have any time to write till like February. What was I thinking? I'm crazy. I should have said tomorrow. So, uh, what if tomorrow never comes? I know if tomorrow never comes, I should have written with him the next day. <laughs> so Bob Doyle, bless his heart, when he got back to his office, he called me up and said, how's February 1st? And I said, that's fine. So Garth came over and when I get together to write with any songwriters, I try to spend time coming up with six or seven ideas that I can run by them, and you hope the other co-writer does the same thing. So I was waiting on Garth, and I knew nothing about him. He didn't know anything really about me, I don't think. But he came in, and at the time, he was wearing these really big, long leather dusters and big cowboy boots and a big cowboy hat. And he walked through my front door, and I was sitting on the couch like this, like we were, and he stood up above me, and he looked like, he's tall anyway, but he looked like he was eight feet tall. And he looked down on me and said, I got a song I've run by 25 writers, and nobody likes it. And I looked up at him, and I said, gee, thanks. <laughs> and he kind of got testy, and he said, don't you want to hear what I got? And I said, yeah, play me what you got. And so he played me what he had, and I said, well, I love this because it's what my mother used to tell me, of tell the people you love how you feel about them while they're still alive. And He said, well, what's wrong with it? And I said, well, you're killing somebody off in the first two lines of the song, and there's really nowhere to go. And so he said, well, what would you do? And he said, I spit it all out. And he's like, okay. And um, when I was getting inducted to the Songwriter Hall of Fame, they wanted to see the lyric. So I pulled it out, and I hadn't looked at it in a while. But at the bottom of the page in his handwriting, he wrote the whole first verse out. Mm. And then at the top of the page, I wrote the chorus out and the second verse. And it must be true that I spit it out because he's never written down another lyric the whole time we've ever written songs together. Wow. He's just got that that steel trap of a memory. But for some reason, he wrote that down. So in his handwriting, it's at the bottom of the page. And that means a lot to me, too, that it's like there's the first one right Listen, there. Listen, if you ever need to take that to eBay, I'm sure that would go for a pretty big. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. If you had never taken that chance on Garth Brooks Mm -hmm. that day, February 1st, do you think Garth would be where Garth is today? I don't know if he'd be where he is today, but I think he would still be huge because he is one of these people that nothing's going to stop him. And he's the hardest working people like Michael Jackson you were talking about. He had a vision that I never knew he had a vision till even after the first album, but we would be writing a song. The first time we wrote a song with Kim Williams, he didn't have a record deal yet. And we finished the song and he said, that's going to be on my third record. Third. Third record. And I'm like, you're, you're delusional. <laughs> and when the third record came out, it, it was, was on, on the it? third record. Well, and then the other thing he did was 
Six months after we wrote If Tomorrow Never Comes, he does this a lot. It's kind of scary, but he calls me up and said, hey, I saw where we're going to shoot the video for If Tomorrow Never Comes. I'm going, he doesn't even have a record deal. And a year later, he calls me and says, hey, you remember that place I told you about where we're going to cut the video? We're going to cut it there today. And I'm like, okay, you're scaring me. But (laughs) that's what's so great about him and hearing that. For instance, we have my videographer here sitting with us because he's helping record this, Robert. I always have such a wild vision for everything that Mm -hmm. I do. Sometimes when I call Robert, he goes, you got to be kidding me. And I'm really a stickler on my vision, on what I see. And when I hear something, I just know. And I think that's a lot of artists. I think they just envision it and they can't get it out of their heads. So for him, this is where I'm going to shoot that video. And this is what we're going to do, no matter if that's a month later, two years later. He had the vision. You've tapped into a really important thing. That's, you know, when you know. Mm -hmm. It's beyond your brain's not thinking about it. You just go, I know that's the way to do it. And Garth had so much of that. And so many people were putting roadblocks in his way going, you can't do that. Nobody's done that. And I'll always love this answer that you might remember. It's like, but if we could do it, how would we do it? Mm -hmm. And it kind of fries their brain cells, but it also gets them out of their locked up position of we can't do this. Sure. It's pretty cool. And when I heard him say that one time, I thought, that's how you do it. You just described him as basically unstoppable. And I, mm-hmm. it's funny you say this because I actually have it written down. I <laughs> literally verbatim, I said, if you had turned down Garth for writing mm-hmm. If Tomorrow Never Comes, do you think the song would have never been written? Or do you think Garth was just so unstoppable that he was going to get that song written? I was just surprised that 25 people had passed on that idea. I don't know if he would have ended up writing it by himself or if he would have found somebody else that was willing to write it. But I mean, he was writing great songs at the time because he would always come in and play me what he wrote. And he would also play what we wrote for other writers. And he Mm -hmm. was always trying to get everybody's feedback on stuff. And I always thought that was really cool. It wasn't like, I'm keeping this to myself. Nobody's going to hear it. He was getting everybody's ideas. And then just like the team he put around him, Pat Alger, Tony Rada, Victoria Shaw, Kim Williams, all of us had a different thing that we brought to a writing appointment with him. Sure. And I don't see that happening these days either. Mm-hmm. You know, you go in with the track guy and everybody's, it's kind of, there's not that organic thing anymore like there was to me. He had a way of just getting different people together to create something organic that probably wouldn't happen if they didn't get them together like me and him and Kim Williams. It's just amazing what he was able to do and how he saw how people would fit together and what would work and what wouldn't work. Sure. And I know I'd read and you'd kind of said a little bit before that he had been turned down by labels, development deals, Mm -hmm. all these things over and over Over again. Over and over, yeah. What was it you saw in him that so many people didn't see? It's going to sound weird, but more than anything, it was the heart that he had. It was the intensity that he had. It was just one of those people you knew that he was going to make it happen no matter what. Mm -hmm. And he had Bob Doyle on his side, which is just about as important as anything else, who had been in the music business and knew how everything worked. But, you know, he just he was going to be like a Jack Russell. He was going to bite on something and hold on. (laughs) and, And he did. And I had other friends like Billy Dean was my main demo singer before Garth. And we'd played in bands together and stuff. And if anybody would have been a big star, I would have thought it was Billy Dean. And he kind of got into it and he saw 
well, my whole life's going to be planned for the next 10 years or something. And he kind of walked away from it. When that started happening in the Garth, he just got deeper and deeper into it. Okay, where can we take it? Where can we take it? What else can we do? Mm -hmm. He was willing, like you said, to put in the time and effort. And I saw him when he was going to retire for the first time, and he'd been on the road for 10 years. And I was walking down Music Row when there was still a Music Row. And he pulled up next to me in his truck, and he said, get in. And I got in, and I looked over at him. I said, man, you look really tired. And he said, I've slept four or five hours every night for the past 10 years. And that shows you. And that weighs on you. Yeah. That's the work he was putting in. He knew what he had to do, and he was going to do it more than anybody else ever did it. And how amazing that you saw that Mm -hmm. ahead of, you know, so many people. Ultimately, you took a chance on somebody that a lot of people were not taking a chance on. And they, wow, did they miss out on that opportunity. Do you think that happens very often anymore as a newer emerging artist mm-hmm. in Nashville? I'm not seeing people taking the chances on younger artists, new artists, the way you did at one point right. in time. Why do you think that doesn't happen that much anymore? The interesting thing was back then, how people became stars was they were demo singers. Mm-hmm. All those people, they were pitching their project or whatever, but what it usually took was somebody hearing a song by somebody else that was being pitched in a meeting go who's singing that you Mm. know and uh, so we don't have that anymore we don't really have demo singers as much like we did and even if people don't sing very good can all be fixed in the studio so it, (laughs) it, it really doesn't matter but the other thing i saw was when i got with him and we wrote if tomorrow never comes when he left that day i thought he's 25 going on 50 You couldn't find anybody today that could write If Tomorrow Never Comes at 25 years old or anybody that would sing it at 25 years old. It's that heart thing that that we don't have anymore. It's it's all kind of the same thing. I just knew there was a depth to him that nobody really had seen. And then I was hearing the songs that he was writing. So when he got his record deal, he had three albums written pretty much. And he was planning all that. Nobody knew he was planning all of it because nobody was interested in him. Now these days, you got to go write your 12 songs for your first record. Okay, we've done that. Now you got to come up with 12 more, and they're going, yeah. Yeah. And uh, it's hard to do, but he, he was prepared. He had laid all that groundwork while nobody was interested in him, just putting in the work mm-hmm. under the radar that nobody was aware of. So how would you say yours and Garth Brooks's personalities differ what made it click? What made it your guys' personalities come together and work? I think for both of us, it was a love of music. I mean, okay. this guy knows every song that's been written by anybody at any time. And he's a real rock and roller, too. He was coming from Kiss and ACDC as much as he was coming from George Jones. We kind of had the same background because we loved rock and roll, but we also loved country. And we loved great songs. We would just sit around and talk about songs that had just blown us away and uh, there wasn't anything you could run by him that he hadn't heard or or even played i did a gig out in tulsa at leon russell studio back in december and so some people that knew garth came over from oklahoma city and tulsa and they were telling me about they would go to hear him play at clubs and people would go like play keith whitley he played kiss whitley play a kiss song he play a kiss mm. song do you know this song and he yeah i know this song time in a bottle okay i'll do it it's like he was a walking jukebox, <laughs> and uh, he still kind of is. If you go see him like in Vegas, he talks about that whole influence of 
His dad was country. His mom was pop. His older brothers and sisters were into rock and roll. So he was he was in the middle of this whole pot that was brewing all different kind of music. Well, I think that's what's interesting about listening to that XM station he had mm-hmm. or has. I don't know if he still has it. I think it. He, he quit it about a month ago or so. Oh, okay. People, I think, expect when they went to the Garth Brooks channel that they were going to get Garth Brooks songs. Right. But no, it was just a bunch of music that influenced him mm-hmm. and that he loves. And I thought that's what was really cool because you got to see kind of inside of his brain of what he likes. Right. And I thought that was a really, really cool thing. It's too bad if he doesn't have that anymore. The thing of it is he he is that jukebox and he loves songwriters. I mean, he's the biggest fan of songwriters you would ever get. That's why he found songwriters and Nashville songs because Clint Black was out at the same time. And Clint Black kind of had a head start on him. And he was also managed by ZZ Top's manager, so it was all kind of money and all that. And I think Clint wrote everything on every record. And so the music community is like, Clint Black, okay, he's, he's not giving anything back to Nashville. Mm-hmm. But then when Garth started cutting outside material, people were like, wow, we have a chance to get songs cut by this guy. And it makes a difference. It does. And then the other thing that I saw about Garth this was even before he really had his record deal, but he was starting to go out and play. So Clint had like two buses and whole band already put together. And Garth was in a bread truck with six guys. They built bunks in this bread truck so they could travel around even his first year. And I just saw he wasn't going to let anything get in his way. You know, he's like, I know Clint's got buses and he's got this and he's got that, but I'm going to bypass him. I'm going to shoot right by him. And wow. it was that. Because he was a big athlete, I think he had that part in him, too, of competitive. Uh-huh. He's so competitive. And the person he's the most competitive with is himself. Uh-huh. That just drives him. And it just gives him that that strength and that power that a lot of people don't have. Sure. And he knows how to work with people because they did football, baseball, basketball. So you know how a team works. And he's real good. That's why he's got the same band he's had for as long as he's had them, you know, he's just, he's real loyal, Loyalty. but he also knows how to put people together that'll work. And the same with his studio band. It's all the same people all the time, but he likes what he found and he knows what they'll create together. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Well, in Nashville, it's more like if it ain't broke, let's break it. I know. What's up with that? I don't know. It's I've seen it the whole time I've been here. You get something working really good and somebody comes along and we need a new manager. We need a new producer. And it's like, Seemed like it's working to me. You can't buy chemistry. Mm-hmm. It's like getting into a good relationship with somebody. You know, you yeah. just when you got a good thing, don't trade it in now for something better. The grass isn't always greener. Well, but everybody's always looking for the greener. I mean, but it doesn't usually exist. And that's what I see these days. I don't want to get into it much, but with the younger artists and all that, it's like they're always chasing the next thing. It's not like they're really developing who they are. It's like, what are we doing? Where are we going? Who else is it? So you can write a number one song with somebody and you never hear from them again because they're onto the next hip hop kind of thing. And it's, it's just a different time. And that's what means as much to me about Garth is we're still friends. We still write. We still hang out. We did a, a live hospice at the Bluebird in January. He came and played the whole night. I don't know who else would mm-hmm. be doing that other than maybe Vince Skill or somebody like sure. that. So it shows the kind of guy he is. Because it all starts with a song and a songwriter. Hey, thanks for listening to What's Mine Is Yours, the podcast with Tiffany Woods.
If you enjoyed this podcast, you can stay updated with all things What's Mine is Yours by visiting WMIYpodcast.com or following me on socials at Tiffany Woys and the podcast at WMIYpodcast. Please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. We really appreciate it. Recorded in Nashville, Tennessee. Produced in Los Angeles, California. Presented by Tiffany Woys in conjunction with Roundhouse Entertainment. Executive producers Tiffany Woys and The Ed Hill. Original music from Robert Shavers and Kiefer Thompson. Recorded and engineered by Robert Shavers. You can check out my music on all streaming services and a special playlist we've created for each episode with songs written by each guest only on Spotify. Thanks for listening to What's Mine is Yours.